0: On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Fly by Night and Caress of Steel. Welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands, album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and I'm joined once again on this episode of Progressive Palaver by my very good friends Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory as we continue our discussion of the early part of the Rush catalog, this time with the two albums Fly By Night and Caress of Steel. Their second album, Fly By Night, released in 1975. And I have a note here because it was February of 1975. That's going to become important in a minute. This was produced by Rush and Terry Brown. So enter Terry Brown, longtime collaborator. Released on the, uh, the label anthem Mercury, um, featuring Geddy Lee, Alex Lifeson, and now Neil Peart on uh, drums. Fly By Night is the second studio album by canadian rock band rush released in february 1975 it was the first rush album to showcase elements of progressive rock for which the band has become known this release was also the first to feature lyricist and drummer neil kurtz Mm -hmm. then in september of 1975 here again we've had this you know we, we how it takes five years to get an album out of a band nowadays these guys have two in seven months. So September of 1975, they released Caress of Steel, produced by Rush and Terry Brown, released on the, able, the label Anthem Slash Mercury, featuring Getty, Alex, and Neil. Caress of Steel is the third studio album by Canadian rock band Rush, released in 1975. The album shows more of Rush's adherence to hard progressive rock as opposed to the blues-based hard rock style of the band's first album.
1: No, nope. so I will I will kick off "Fly By Night" by saying that for somehow so when I when I started my exploration of Rush, Jay, I spent after I uh, went to college back to school, got Grace under pressure. Uh, one of, one of the the. Uh, girls that I knew uh, who I was trying to get a ride to park city from found out I was trying to get grace under pressure. She said, Oh, well, I have a rush tape that I'd never listened to. You can have it. And it was power (laughs) windows. So I basically, I basically had grace under pressure power windows and, uh, the original cassette I had brought from home, which had hemispheres and permanent waves. So I listened to that for a couple of weeks, those four, and uh, came home one weekend, I think probably like one of, the, one of the weekends close to the holidays, and spent Friday or Saturday night at Jay's house with Jay uh, dropping some cassettes, making some dubs of Exit Stage Left, uh, Moving Pictures, uh, Farewell to King's, I think. And one of the things that he said he gave me was a cassette of Caress of Steel. And he said this and he said he probably said this is one of the first albums with Neil Peart. And what I heard was this was the first album with Neil Peart as the drummer and and lyricist. And even though I've watched a lot of videos and documentaries on Rush, I somehow never computed that Fly By Night was actually the first album with Neil Uh Peart. And for some reason, I always thought it was the final of the first four. That it was... Okay. Uh, and so, I can honestly tell you that even going into this exercise, I was a little stunned to realize that Fly By Night was the ver- the second album, and it was the first one with Neil Peart. And if you um, want to... Assert yourself as the new drummer in a band, uh, putting Anthem as the first track of the album is probably the way to do it because the beginning of Fly By Night just slays. And, um, Anthem is a killer song and it, it's, it's kind of like everything that Neil Peart has to offer. And, um, and, you know, I com- I'm i coming out of this exercise probably liking fly-by-night as my favorite of the first four, which really surprised me um, going into it. Mm. Yeah, you know,
0: and, and here again, Paul, it's, it's amazing because when I'm looking at my notes on this, um, for Anthem, kicks ass, I love it. And then and underneath that is the impact of Neil Peart is immediate.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know just just out of the get-go. so so here you have sort of this you know seismic shift where you've got Neil coming in and you have Terry Brown, um, which seems yeah. to be you know sort of the 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 two parts of the puzzle that perhaps were needed to get where we we finally end up going. And you know I think, while this is not a fully developed or, or mature rush at this point, it is a tremendous leap forward. Um, it would be interesting to know how old these guys were at this time. Um, I would imagine they're probably in their, what, early, mid-20s, something like that. Um, but but yeah, this, this, this record is clearly... You know, I think the the start of of the the progressive rush. Oh, and, yeah. not, and not not just because of tour and the Snowdog, <laughs> which is really just fun to say.
2: Yeah. Oh, Neil is only a year older than the other two, so Neil was born in '52.
0: So
1: Neil was twenty three in nineteen seventy five. Yeah, they all gotta be sort of in that same, you know, mid twenties age, I would think, at this point. Yeah, um, around
2: uh twenty-three, twenty-two.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I I think you're right. I think this is probably the best sounding, at least to my ears, it's the best sounding album of the four, which may have contributed to my long lasting belief that this was actually the fourth album that they that they did. Uh and you know like the I, you know even in the song Fly by Night, Joe, I think you're right, we're getting glimpses of, of, um, of that this is not just a regular uh, a regular act, a regular hit writing machine, right. There's um, the, um, the, the the breakdown that they do. Like it's not, it's it's a different bridge. It totally changes the, the complexion of the song, um, you know. Uh, like start a new chapter, find what I'm after. It's changing every day, right? Like it, that whole part is just a different thing, and yeah. it doesn't it doesn't really just like yeah, you know, and it's not a pop mechanism. It is it's it is a different place where the song goes in the bridge, and I and I love that you know i've never really in these early albums i don't know that i've always glued right into the lyrics so much because of the some of the you know most of it i can't sing because it's just ridiculous (laughs) so i'm never singing along in the car and so i like the songs that are more interesting musically than than probably anything else but quiet and pensive my thoughts apprehensive the hours drift away leaving my homeland playing a lone hand my life begins today is like so great. It's just and you know it's it's about Neil, you know, traveling, you know, leaving his home and going to London. It's 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 amazing. And and it 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 reminds me, you know, of (laughs) to you know, this is gonna be funny, but it reminds me of Prom Queen, Ken. Prom Queen, you know, was (laughs) a terrific song and it had that middle section That was a completely different bridge it was it was not a like a pop music mechanism it was its own musical section that fit beautifully and it kind of reminds me of of that uh of that of that um that that same kind of style it's not it's not your everyday song and i think that to our the other point that we were making is that they are separating themselves from the norm here it's not just business as usual in the Rush camp, as far as, you know, the songwriting goes.
2: Well, I fess up to going to great lengths to steal Rush. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and, wow. and, Paul, it's amazing, because here again, when I look at my notes for Fly By Night, I have a note down here where, you know, this was sort of a, probably the the most obvious example that i'd come across you know as we're going through chronologically where where sort of the the rush spacing of the instruments starts to take on this sort of atypical feel and and you know it, they're they're operating you know perhaps in in ways that would be unexpected in addition to the the structure of the song itself and you know fly by night is one of those songs where You know again even the most casual fan who has no idea that it's off the second album or anything else you've heard fly by night and you know it 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 does stick with you um so yeah I, i i agree with everything that you said there and i also agree that that this is of these first four the best sounding album um you know, it's interesting when you get into, and we've had this conversation with other, with the other groups we've covered as well. It's amazing when you have an album that's recorded and and produced in a way that, that sounds just wonderful, and then the next album, it you know, it sounds like they recorded it you know in someone's toilet bowl or something, and you're like, well, what what happened? True,
1: mm-hmm. it's very true.
2: This is and, a good time. Sorry for me to fess up that I had a Rush songbook. I wasn't just figuring out everything by ear. I, 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 it could have been Mel Bay. It could have been anything, but it was it was Bucks County Folk Music Shop. It was in the rack, and I had to have it.
0: <laughs> so what kind right. of things were in that, Ken?
2: Uh, Fly By Night and Xanadu.
0: Oh, really? Wow. Xanadu.
2: Yeah. And And if anything was earlier, I probably skipped it, but those two... I know. I went back and forth with my guitar teacher, and like, how do you do this? How do you do this? And we we figured it out. Nice, very cool.
0: Yes. Yeah. And you know, Paul, you had you had mentioned um, the lyrics on "Fly By Night." Part of it, Part of that sort of sustained level of quality that I was talking about earlier really involves Neil's lyrics. Um, which is amazing that, you know, some of my beef with some of the later albums is, you know, here you've got this guy who has this, this track record of really, you know, almost transcendent lyrics. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of images he's able to convey and, and the way he uses the language, which I had I, always admired in, in some of the later albums, it becomes almost juvenile. And, and it's, I, I still, I'll be interested to see how I feel when we get to those albums um, and, and how that, if that still is, is the way I remember it in my head. But, you know, here again, it's not just, it's not just the drumming that Neil brings to the table, even right out of the gate here. So it, yeah. it really is, um, you know, it's amazing. So when you look at, you know, here we, we, so we've got Anthem, which is is totally kick-ass, and and Fly By Night, you know, and, and then here we've got, and, and it's interesting because I, I guess it's well-documented, since I've heard it somewhere, you know, that my understanding is that Neil was or is a voracious reader and you know would would seek inspiration in a lot of the things that that he read in terms of, of his lyrics. And so when you have that, um, you know, he brings, and I guess the things he were reading was reading were were the sorts of what you would expect to be standard inspiration if you will in progressive rock right and so that's why you start to see even in this first album with him on there some of the the earmarks of of what you would call traditional progressive rock coming in um you know you've got you've got by tour and the snow dog with the with the multi part thing and not only you know you got to give him credit because not only you know do they have the the long form song with 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 what um, I guess we got four parts here, but part three actually has four subparts. So... <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they're, they're, they're sort of embracing all of that. And, and I have to, I, I have to laugh, but what, and I think it becomes important when you're talking about the age of, of the, of the artists, when you have something like Rivendell, which is just, I mean, you know, talk about putting it out there. It's like, yeah, yeah I read Tolkien, I love it. I'm going to write a song about it. And it's actually a beautiful song. Um, it, it, you know, to anyone who reads Tolkien and understands, you know, the importance of that particular locale, I think, you know, it. I find it surprising that they were able to craft a song that conveys with fidelity the overall impression that Tolkien creates with that space and yet is not you know completely derivative it it, it is its own thing but it's completely in harmony with the source inspiration it mm. I, I find it I find it surprising.
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, you, you can say the same thing about Anthem. Um, you know, it's based off the Anne Rand book, and I think it's the same thing. It conveys it beautifully without being completely derivative. And um, and Rivendell, it is, uh, it is, it's funny. I never, I never wake up in the morning and think, ah, oh, I'm listening to Rivendell on the way, on the way to work, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but when you when you listen to the whole album and you're like, I'm going to listen to the whole album, it really is a be- it's a it's a great spot and then and then it, you know it 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 fits right nicely right after making memories, which is another one of my favorites from from the album. It fits in so beautifully, like you said, Joe, and then transitions to in the end, which I think is a is a really great great song as well and. Um, yeah, and it's it's a sleeper though because you, like I never find myself going back to listen to Rivendell. It's just you know one of the one of the songs that makes the album really special. I think. Yeah. No. Absolutely. It. Um,
0: and, and and so going back, you know, earlier into the album. So obviously, you know, out of the gate, Anthem kicks your ass, and then best I can. Um. You know, it's it's interesting because best I can is probably the song that that moves me the least on this
2: record. Is that one but of it's... the screechy ones? What's that? One of the screechy ones.
1: Yeah, but it's a, but, but the, it feels a little
2: bit like a throwback
1: to um, you know maybe this was left over from the first album, you know.
0: But but the interesting thing about that, and and maybe maybe that's why it doesn't really work for me. But at the same time. You know you start to get sort of the flavor of of Neil and his percussion sort of beyond the normal drum kit so you know even even if it's not the strongest track on the record there are still sort of some interesting qualities about it that that point you know going uh, going forward so I, I think it's you know it's it's certainly interesting um, <laughs> yeah
1: the wiki's credit Getty Lee with with scribing the lyrics on that one so more evidence to suggest maybe this may have been the one they they worked on to figure out how to get the the drum sound right in the studio and then they and then they (laughs) just kept it maybe
0: and um you know my notes here on beneath between and behind is it's as i was listening to this and listening to it in the way that i listen to things for for this podcast i think this particular song beneath between and behind is it's almost like watching rush walk from old rush to new rush huh. yeah you know, I think I think there are some some aspects of this where you can actually see that transformation occurring almost right before your eyes. Which, you know, again, when when I try to approach albums, especially albums that I don't know particularly well, um, for the palaver, I'm always sort of looking for those those threads and connective yeah. tissue, and and this one sort of stood out to me as being that.
1: Yeah, this this one was on, you know, I I learned this song first, really, from Exit Stage Left. And there's a great version of this on Exit Stage Left. And Jay and I used to always jam out to this, you know, at the beginning of practice while waiting for Tom. And um, it was really, It it's always been a song that's been in my head. But listening to it around this go around I really got an appreciation for the song itself, how well it's crafted, how well they did it recording wise. And, and really how, how great Getty sang it. Like it just crushes it. It's really, it's a, it's a cool song. It's a very cool song. By I tour can... the snow dog. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, no, go go ahead. Because I wanted, I wanted to go to buy tour the snow dog.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I I I dig it. It's cool. Like when I, this was like when I was going back into the catalog after getting into Rush, I was like wanting to hear something like this, and it it's cool. And I think it's 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 almost becomes experimental, right? It's it becomes their their first stab at a, a longer bit, a longer piece, and it, this is. This is the precursor to the Necromancer and to the Fountain of Laneth, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. And and this one is, you know, those three songs, you know, those two songs plus Bytor, you can you can probably put in the same level. They they're sort of the woodshed, the woodshop that they work through to get to twenty one twelve and all that that comes out after it. Um, and you can make an argument that Bitor it might be the best one of the lot. Um, I would I would not make that argument. I would argue
0: that uh, Lemneth is is the best of the bunch. But
1: I, I would make that argument too. But others may not. So <laughs> we, we may have a battle. We may have a battle when we when we get to.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think I, I think you're absolutely right in that Bitor is sort of like. So when I was. One of the times that I was in Barcelona, I had the opportunity to go see a Picasso museum that they have there. And, you know, by my own admission, there's much about art, you know, visual art painting that I don't understand um, and I don't always get. And certainly with someone like Picasso, who was doing things, you know, sort of so far off the beaten path. However, I re- one of the things that I remember about the visit to that particular museum was there was Picasso had one of his sort of large scale masterpiece works, which was, uh, I don't even know the right terms. I guess it was a cubist interpretation of a classical painting and the way they set up the, the 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 exhibit on this was fascinating because they they showed you the the inspiration piece they showed you Picasso's final interpretation but then they went through and they showed you all of the work that Picasso did in terms of how he was going to interpret this piece of the inspiration versus this piece. And if he put them together and it wasn't quite right, he would go back in and change one of them. I mean, it was not like Picasso just said, Oh, I'm just going to make a bunch of squares here. He really put a lot of work into it. And for me, I think when you talk about, you know, by tour and, and the necromancer, um, the fountain of Lemneth and, and even 2112, I think those fit into those preparatory pieces. Um, you know they're they're trying to figure out how to do it, and whereas Yes may have done it on the fly by splicing tape together, I think these guys are maybe approaching, you know, figuring out how to do that in a in a different way.
2: Yeah, well, that's well, I, a good um, yeah. Go ahead, Ken. I mean, Getty talks about going to see Rush. We knew that they were Yes influenced pretty early on. It's maybe surprising it took as long as it did to surface. I mean, when they were a blues rock band, okay, so they were playing in pubs. And then when they got into more concert scenarios, they were able to play, you know, more extended uh, prog rock tunes. Um, But we know in hindsight now what the influences were. So... You know, maybe, maybe Getty wasn't writing those lyrics himself, but clearly, Getty and Alex wanted a drummer who was simultaneously a lyricist who was also, you know, pretty deep. And luckily, they found their they found their guy.
1: Yeah, um, no kidding. Did they ever? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, imagine imagine what that audition must have been like, right? I'm sure I've watched a video where they describe it and I just am not remembering it, but imagine like you're auditioning drummers. Neil yeah. Peart walks
2: in. And just, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we, we didn't get to hear about what he played in. Like usually you get to hear about what the guy played in previously or something. I don't know how they, if he did have a previous band.
1: Um, our, res- our research department's on it. It looks like. Yeah. I'm sure it was mentioned, but, but you know, at that point, it's like, I'm sure I watched this on, uh, you know, DVD or some kind of thing. And I just, I should have watched it beforehand. Um,
2: well, the, so. the, the planets, you'll find it in the next minute, but the planets aligned just insofar as having a yes influence bunch of musicians in a culture that could sustain this kind of transition from blues to Prague—it's just beautiful.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's really amazing. The the one <laughs> not to uh, to to sort of whatever the, the the one other note that I I have about fly by night and and by tour specifically is. And it, it, I just I'm tickled, amused, whatever the word is, by the way, Getty sings/slash yells
1: "Snow Dog"
0: <laughs> in, in, in that in that song. It just it kills me. And when you read like the songs about some guy they knew who was like, you know, being threatened by some other dude's dog, <laughs> it's like yeah, it's just silly but you know hey they uh, I, 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 I have nothing really bad to say about about by tour hmm. um, yeah. or, or, or fly
1: by night I think fly by night is is really really solid yeah because to be fair you could go to almost any song in these first four albums and find a part of the song where Getty's voice just kind of irks you out a little bit you know <laughs> well
0: I, I uh, you know, like I said, and and we'll get there. But you know, I find I I find it amazing given the story behind all that was at stake at twenty one twelve, and to have you know Getty just coming out of the gate just <laughs> screeching his head off at you nonstop. It's like holy
2: shit! Stop ha. it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. What was Jay's first car? The
0: Nissan Pulsar.
2: Yes. Was it? All right, okay, well, uh, um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just picturing this this thing with Neil Peart showing up. His future bandmates described his arrival that day as somewhat humorous as he arrived in shorts, driving a battered old Ford Pinto with his drums stored in trash cans. So... <laughs> there
0: you go. Well, and, and, and I can only imagine, you know, you're talking about that audition... I can only imagine him, you know, them listening to him play. And it's like, all right, this guy is pretty phenomenal. And then he, you know, I'm, I'm picturing him whipping out, you know, his little notebook of, of words, you know, lyrics that he's written down. Cause I'm, I'm imagining he was always like that. And it's like, oh shit, this guy can play like that. And he's
1: got all this, Mm -hmm. you know, it's
0: one of those where you don't even let him out the door. You ink him right away. I would imagine.
1: Yeah. So, boy it's interesting so Ken you're probably reading the same thing that I'm seeing as we're as we're talking through this so at when he was 18 this is this is like a story and like why you shouldn't give up I guess right so apparently at 18 years of, of age Neil was struggling to have any success in the uh, drumming world in Canada so he picked up and moved to London which of course was the inspiration for his song fly by night the lyrics for that and while there he tried to play in bands and do session work but ended up selling jewelry at a shop called the great fog and that's when he discovered Ayn Rand. and uh after a year and a half he returned to canada and began playing in a band called of all things hush (laughs) that's funny before interviewing or interviewing, auditioning for Rush, and as you're probably reading, Ken, Alex had a less than favorable impression of of Neil Peart, and they finally decided to bring him in, uh, even though they thought his style was maniacal.
2: Yeah, I like <laughs> that word, maniacal. Yeah. They <laughs> compare him to Keith Moon. Um, yeah. It's funny, I love the wikis, you gotta love it. Um,
1: <laughs> which, is, which is fitting, because... I think there are more than a couple times in these first four albums where it almost appears as if Alex and, and Getty are lifting entire sections from The Who to fill in spots of, um, of songs. The end of The Necromancer, um, there's a section in, in um, The Fountain of Lamneth where I think they do it as well. And even I think in Fly By Night, although it may or not Fly By Night, 2112, although it may not be in the actual... I think it is actually in live by it anyway, or 2112. Sorry, it's getting late.
0: So that kind of leads us into, I think, caressive steel. Now, again, this album was released seven months after fly by night. That's incredible. It is really. Uh, I mean, i I'm, I, I'm just stunned by, by the timing of that. And you know, apparently this was not terribly well received and, and you know I
1: not hard to understand why.
0: Yeah, it, it really isn't. I mean and, that, and that's not to say, you know that there's some good stuff on here. Um, you know, I, I think one of one of the things that first attracted me, to caress of steel was Bastille Day, and I've been I've been I've been thinking about this particular phenomenon because, and here's what I here's what I arrived at, and you guys can tell me your thoughts on this. I think adolescent boys, you know, guys who are in junior high school, high school, whatever, um, you know, as they start to discover music. They tend to be fascinated with a song about some sort of subject matter that they've heard about in class at some point, even though they know nothing about it. But we've all heard about the French Revolution. We know about Bastille Day. Oh, here's this song about it. For me, it's a lot of why, you know, early on Iron Maiden resonated with me. It's like... They've got a song about you know rhyme of the ancient Mariner or murders of the Rue Morgue. I've, I've read those cool let's let's check this out so <laughs> you yeah, know I, I, it, it's it's maybe not the most noble way to become interested in something or but you know I, I it's just something that I, I was was thinking about
2: wasn't there ozzy Mandias? wasn't <laughs> Paul <laughs> I don't remember exactly what that was, but I think that was our equivalent, right?
0: Well, that was, that was, I was. yeah, I, 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 I became fascinated with that poem, which actually turns out Ozymandias is Ramses Second, although no one knew that was his name at the time, which is why the poem is about Ozymandias. And I was like, a song needs to be written about this. And I took it to Paul and I said, Paul, a song needs to be written about this.
2: Really? And Yeah. I did not know this.
1: Yep, yes, right in the guys waited twenty five years.
2: Wow. Yeah, Joe said, "Here's the book. Here's the page." (laughs) Wow, that's awesome! Thanks for doing that. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) thanks, Joe. That was awesome, dude. Yeah, it worked out pretty well for everybody. You should do that more often.
0: Yeah, so so Bastille Day is 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 very very well I, I think before maybe we start going through this, we've already sort of touched on it. I think from a sonic quality, this album is lacking. Um I yeah, and I don't fair. I don't know if 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 it's because they rushed it. Um no pun intended. Um you guys have seen the wikis. I'm sure, you know, Getty apparently has made comments that they were all pretty baked at this point. Um, you know, so I don't know if Terry Brown was also smoking the the hoochie at that point, and, and so no one knew what the hell was coming out. I, I don't know, but but whatever it is, you know, from a certainly compared to Fly By Night, this album just doesn't sound as as appealing, and there's there's a lot of screeching going on, but you know, Bastille Day I think is very cool. Yeah, I think I'm going bald is. It's goofy, yeah, and and it's it's incongruous, I think, with everything else that we have going on. I mean, even Bitor and the Snow Dog, which if you say those words, sounds ridiculous. Yes, and the subject matter, when you read the story, sounds ridiculous, but it doesn't come across that way. It it comes across as something very very serious, um, and I think I'm going bald just. It, it, it's completely out there as, as being silly and I feel bad that that bothers me like I think I should have a more open mind and, and say hey why can't I just enjoy this and laugh a little bit but I can't it just annoys the shit out of me
1: always been one of my favorite Rush songs believe it or not are you I, <laughs> yeah and, and oh, oh the irony now Right <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's too funny. But I'll tell you this, I'll, I'll tell you and I don't, we, can, we can I'll say this and we can decide whether we want to go down this road or wait till we get to side two. Because Jay gave me his cassette of caress of steel, if you had the cassette of caress of steel, I think I'm going bald was put on side two to balance the tape, which I'm not sure why yeah. you needed to do that, but it was put on on side two. And it wasn't just put on before the fountain of lamb Net or after for some reason it was put on in, in the middle of, <laughs> of, <Fountain> of <laughs> That is terrible! Oh my god. Well, so it actually is not terrible um, because <laughs> it's, it's if so you awful. if you don't know any better, even though it's a it's completely different, and it seems to com- like musically, it is a complete removal of all of the themes and all of the things that are happening lyrically. It's not. It's, it's it's not so bad. It kind of fits in with the arc of the story and what's happening in the Fountain of Lemneth. <laughs> and and it's it's a little bit it's a little bit of a all right. This is going to be a pretty heavy duty thing going on here. Let's rock out for four minutes and and you know talk about what it feels like to start your midlife crisis. You know, um, it's it, it's the paper lies of of caressive steel. Perhaps it is. And it fits much better as, you know, track five point two than track two itself. Well, that's that's interesting.
0: I I have not experienced it that way. So maybe I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that I am gonna have to, to
1: program that because I have to. <laughs> I'm serious. When I listen to this on Spotify and it goes from In the Valley to Didax and Narpets, it freaks me out. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. That's not what I'm ready to hear.
0: Oh, my God. That is awesome. That... you, you uh, <laughs> I don't even know what to do with that. That being said, and like I said caressive Steel is, is an album that I had probably long before I should have for no really good reason, other than the fact, like I said, I was irrationally fixated on it. That being said, I have always loved Lakeside Park. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it's just, oh, it's spectacular. Every time the song comes on, I'm just like in a happy mood. I'm like, yeah, all right, I can totally get into this. I'll just run through the rest of this and, and you guys can kind of fill in and, and sort of correct me where I go off the rails. The Necromancer has never really worked for me. Um, you know it, it's it's it, using sort of the analogy I had before. It's a sketch that I just don't really care for. Yeah, what, what's interesting to me though, is listening to this, you know, the last couple times, including just tonight. There are aspects of the beginning of the Necromancer that feel very much like animals to me.
1: Oh, totally, dude. Yeah.
0: Which I, I hadn't really picked up, and then I'm like, huh, well, that's interesting. So there's that.
1: And then. It starts, it's the the Necromancer starts with animals and ends with Bob O'Reilly. That's the fun <laughs> that's the part of
2: it. <laughs> Okay.
0: You know, maybe maybe that's why it doesn't really work for me because it I those two things don't necessarily fit together. And you know, I, I think that's the problem that that these initial long form songs have is that I don't think they knew how to bring it home. Yeah. I think you know, I, I think they had they had trouble connecting up the bits. They weren't really good at transitions. And, and they didn't know how to sort of bring it all together, put a bow on it, and, and have it make sense. Which, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, that, that's, that's not necessarily a fault, because it's not, not like, you know, writing long-form songs like this is, is, you know, something that you do right out of the box.
1: Yeah, it's super, it's like super fan- fantastical, like fantasy-type stuff. It yeah. starts out real, real Floydish, and then the really bizarre three travelers leave or whatever, you know, with the low-pitched Neil Peart reading his his poetry with like the effects, and um, and it's it gets so dramatic, you know, with the um, you know, the the dumb, dong, you know, it's like it's just so over the top you're kind of, like, left thinking, really? Particularly <laughs> if, you know, you already heard them pull off things like Red Marchetta and The Camera yeah. Eye. So, like, <laughs> it really is... It's, a, it, it, it's you know, But when you... The, the best part about doing this this way, listening to all the albums, like, the first four, is you hear their progression. And you're totally right. They They just had to kind of figure it out. And it's not that it's bad; it's it's yeah, it, it's 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 not. It, but it, that's yeah. It, it's it's just not.
0: It's not mature in the way that, you know. And, and I think that's why it was important, you know, Paul, for us to to talk about how we got into it because it does sort of bend our perception of how we we view some of these things. We should have we should have invited you know Mike on here because I'd be interested to see how he feels about. these things. He may feel totally different.
1: I think he, he might feel totally different. I don't know. I don't know. I'll ask him.
0: I'll ask yeah, him. Yeah, I, I think you should. And then, you know, The Fountain of Lemneth, I, I think and, and again, I, I said this sort of in the last segment, you know, ta- You know, we had this discussion on the Merlion Awards, best versus favorite. Um, right. this, this is my favorite of the, the, the four long form songs. In this stretch, I don't know if it's the best. I don't know if any one of them is the best, but this is the one that that works for me, um, the best. And and one of the things that I find interesting about this particular album or this particular song, and and Rush in particular, is the way that through their songs both musically and lyrically, they're able to convey a a sort of a a sense of motion, a sense of discovery. Um, You know, you you can definitely feel moving from from one part of the story into the next. Um, You know, and and even when, even in the later albums, when when they're not doing sort of these long form songs, they can still sort of, you know, give that to you red barchetta i think is an excellent example of that you know it's 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 what a a, it's only a only a six minute song but it has parts you can feel you know leaving leaving the city going out and then when you're out on the drive and and you can feel that and i think the fountain of lemneth is is sort of the the really you know, chronologically, the, the first example of them being able to do that. And for me, you know, while, again, some of the connective tissue isn't quite there. I do have that experience of of, you know, moving through the story throughout this particular song. So that's for me, that's that's why. This one sort of is is my favorite of the of the four long form songs in
1: this section yeah i can totally get behind that joe even i can get behind it being the best of the four even even including i think i'm going bald in the mix um (laughs) but i think you're you're absolutely right in your description and i think one of the things that that may have made 2112 a lot of things probably made 2112 um sort of the exceptional one out of all of these but the story is much simpler 2112 it you know at the face of it it seems like it's a lot more complicated it's a futuristic world and everything but it's it's just a rehash of Ayn Rand's story of Anthem and it's the the cliff notes version right so right. it's it, it's a simpler story to tell through music, where when you think about the Fountain of Lemneth, you're basically taking the character through his entire life in eighteen minutes. And yeah. and there are so many subtleties that you're trying to get across and they're trying to do so much. And you, and the and the production, like you said, just isn't great. The transitions aren't great. Some of the edits are, are like unforgivable. And <laughs> And you know, you have these bits, and they and they don't they don't really do a, it's choppy. It's the probably yeah. the, it's just really choppy because you know, Panacea is a great song, and oh, it, it is it's spectacular. the The way it rolls through to the end of um, I don't even know how to say it, Bacchus, Bac, Bacchus plateau, Bacchus plateau, um, and then sort of the re- recapitulation of the fountain at the end is it just it does tell a really wonderful story and it's it's very it's very uplifting and yet the production quality is so poor that you're sort of not uplifted the way that you would you would like to be and you know they they i i don't you're right i don't know what was going on with with terry brown and this and he definitely wasn't underneath the studio like Eddie offered splicing things together and fixing things and making, you know, saying, Hey guys, what about this? Uh, It just seemed like they were, you know, they, they did what they did and they, they just moved on and they were, they were working at a breakneck speed, but this is definitely my, my favorite one of all of the, of the four. And I have to just give a, a little extra props to no one at the bridge. Because the, you know, Getty just fucking goes for it on this song. And I don't know, I don't know how he ever did it. Like, it is, he just sings his balls off in this tune. And, and like, whether you like the way it sounds or you don't, like, he is 100% in, like, he is totally conveying. The desperation of the character who has, you know, gone through life and and feels like he's lost direction and lost all his support. And I mean, it's he's in it to win it in here. And 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 it has I totally love the solo. It's it's very simple and it's very lovely. But it is—it's just perfect. So I—I am a huge, huge fan of the fountain of run that. Outstanding. Can any
0: specific thoughts on on your end on this or? No. Just taking taking it as read.
2: Oh no, caress wasn't in my vocab. It didn't happen. <laughs> so, one, so one interesting
1: on. one interesting point though I do want to say is that caress of steel. There was a printing error with the album cover, which made it g- give that copperish tone to it, which it was supposed to actually look silverish, like steel. Right. Oh. But they messed it up, and a similar thing happened with their right, their first album. The Rush was supposed to be like this red color, and it came out pink Nick. because of a, which had to have been uh, upsetting to them. And. Very little ado is made around the Fly By Night cover, which I think is kick-ass. And Do you? Yeah.
0: I used to think it was kick-ass until this exercise, and I'm looking at it going, this is terrible.
1: (laughs) I I really like it. I really like it. And And I don't... You don't get much talk about covers anymore, because who even sees covers? Right. find i had to go all the way to the discography on the rush.com so the concept was was created by rush but the cover painting was done by Geraldo carugatti and under the direction of jim jim ladwig i guess agi chicago nonetheless the uh the cover was Irado Karajati, and I'm very happy to say that there was no problems with the coloring of this album, because um, it's great. I think it, it's definitely, as, as far as album covers go, for me, it's number one of the, of the first four. Fly by I Night. Yes, yes, for
0: sure. Yeah. And then, so 2112 was the first album cover by Hugh Syme, if, if I remember correctly. Could be right. I'm not sure about that, but I'm going to go with it. And I want to say that Hugh ended up having a very long relationship with Rush, which we may want to, you know, touch on that later on, um, because I do think some of the visuals on the Rush albums, you know, as with most progressive rock, becomes oh, kind of important.
1: For sure, some of the album covers are are just as well thought out as any anything on the album itself. Yeah.
0: Yeah. For listening to this episode of Progressive Palaver. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you. We welcome and uh, look forward to your input, your feedback, your questions, your comments, whatever you may have. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, um, all of those at Progpala, or you can search for Progressive Palaver and you should find us. We are also uh, available via email, uh, progpala at gmail.com. And as always, Progressive Palaver is available for subscription on both iTunes and Google Play. And we are hosted on SoundCloud. So we thank you very much and look forward to continuing.